welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. All right, friends, if you want to find your seats, that would be great. If you have a Bible, you want to grab it. So I'm very, very excited. Uh, having a couple weeks off the last few weeks, and uh, usually during the summer, I try to take a few a few weeks off from from teaching and preaching. And inevitably, at the end of that, I'm just sort of like chomping at the bit, and I'm always really excited to get back to doing what I have been so graced to be able to do. So that's a good thing. I think that whenever, if it if it ever happens where I'm like, oh man, I have to go back and preach again, that's when I'll know I'll need to like go get my realtor's license or something or become a janitor, or I don't know, something else. But that's not the case. Are you ready? Okay. Uh, So I want to begin this morning with a reminder. And the reminder, uh, over and over and over again in Scripture, we find uh, God reminding the people of God to remember, or said differently, not to forget. Because we are a very forgetful people, are we not? We forget where we've been, we forget where we're going, we forget what we've done, uh, why we're here. We forget. So this morning, I want to remind you, that much of what I dream about, much of what I hope for, much of what I've given myself to in this community at Awaken is creating space. Creating space for us to think, to dream, to wonder, to ask questions, to doubt, but maybe most importantly, creating space to encounter the living God. When we gather on Sunday mornings, that's the hope, that's the prayer. The people who, who, who work so tirelessly uh, to make Sundays happen We do it to the end of, or or the goal is, that we would set the table for us as a community to feast on the divine presence of God. Um, And of course, you know that if you're invited to a party and somebody creates a meal and they set the table for you, you show up, but eventually it comes down to a point where you have to choose to eat, to receive what was made, to receive what was set up, uh, the table that was made for you. And so I guess I would invite you to that this morning. Uh, I would invite you to put down whatever... uh, Whatever walls you've constructed, I would invite you to check whatever cynicism uh, you may have brought in at the door just for a few moments. And as a pastor, I give you my word that I will do my best to love you well, to offer the word of God in a way that um, doesn't do harm. Um, But ultimately, you choose. We choose every time we come, every time we gather, whether or not we are open to what God might do. And so I just want to begin with that reminder this morning. Um, because I think it's easy to forget. Are you with me? Okay, here we go. Uh, So I want to start with a quote from a guy named Alfred Edersheim. He wrote a book called uh, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. It's a little lengthy, but I think it really uh, focuses our attention on where we're going this morning. So he says this, Wherever a Roman, a Greek, or an Asiatic might wander, he could take his gods with him. It was far otherwise for the Jew. He had only one temple, that in Jerusalem, only one God, him who had once throned there between the cherubim and who was still king over Zion. The temple was the only place where a God-appointed pure priesthood could offer acceptable sacrifices, whether for forgiveness or fellowship. Here in the impenetrable gloom of the innermost sanctuary, which the high priest alone might enter once a year, had stood the Ark of the Covenant, think Harrison Ford, And the footstool on which the Shekinah glory had rested. From that golden altar rose the sweet cloud of incense, 
a symbol of Israel's prayers, and that seven-branched candlestick shed its perpetual light, indicative of the brightness of God's covenant presence. Around this temple gathered the sacred memories of the past. To it clung the yet brighter hopes of the future. The history of Israel and all their prospects were intertwined with their religion, so that it may be said that without their religion, they had no history. Without their history, they had no religion. Thus, history, patriotism, religion, and hope all alike pointed to Jerusalem and the temple as the center of Israel's unity. I would add to that not only the temple and Jerusalem, but the priests who served in the temple pointed towards the center of Israel's unity. So today I want to talk about the altar, the priests, and presence. And we're going to focus on this center window in the back. If you're new, we're, we're continuing in this series. Some of you came this morning looking forward to Christopher Columbus. Yes? Anybody? Yeah. That's next week, friends. We literally, we're going around the horn, right? So all of the windows around the horn, we're going to hit this one. And then finally next week, we will save Christopher Columbus for last because he's certainly better than no, right? But that's next week. So this week, we're going to talk about this window. And if you didn't know, this window behind us. So uh, the series we've been walking through, each of these windows, these eight back here are a beatitude from Matthew. These two are missionary windows. And then this, this set of windows here is sort of to be taken as a whole. So I would encourage you after the gathering, if you've never seen these, come up and look at them. They're beautiful. But these are the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. There are three on this side, three on this side, and then this one in the middle is to be seen as one scene. So this is an all play. What are the sacraments of the Catholic Church? Just shout them out if you know them. Say, say louder. Baptism, marriage, confirmation, commu- uh, Eucharist, communion, last rites, confession, and the priesthood. The priesthood. We got it over here. The, the, uh, the, the holy orders, as, as, as it were. So those are the seven. Well done, everybody. Give yourselves a round of applause. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for a mostly Protestant crowd, that was well done. Um, so, uh, the, the, the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church, um, and uh, this center window, which we're going to do most of our focusing on this morning, is uh, the Eucharist, communion. And so, I'll just kind of break down what's in the window here. Uh, in the center, of course, we have Jesus uh, holding the host and the, the chalice, the bread and the wine. And there are four symbols, just right here, and right here, and right here, and right here. These are emblems of the four Gospels, and there are, so there's a man up here, which is a note to Matthew's genealogy that it begins with, the book of Matthew opens with a genealogy. There is a, uh, a lion on this side, which is a, a nod to Mark's Gospel, which begins with John the Baptist in the wilderness. On the bottom left here, you have an ox, which is a nod to Luke's opening scene, which is a stable in Bethlehem in Luke's Gospel. And then down here on the right, there's an eagle, this is not for America, but rather, the lofty thoughts of John 1, right? In the beginning, the word was God, the word was with God, all things were made through him. So, those are the four symbols of the four Gospels. Then, um, on the bottom here, you have Melchizedek serving communion, or serving bread and wine, according to the text. This is Genesis 14. It shows up again in Hebrews chapter 7, which we've studied. So, this is kind of the first, scholars would say, and, and those who, uh, who are interested in this, Melchizedek shows up in Genesis 14 and kind of uh, serves Abraham. He comes out into a field and serves him bread and wine. And so that some would say this is the first sort of inference to communion. 
On the left side here, we have Mary. She's holding a lily as a sign of her purity. Below her is David, who, uh, whose lineage Jesus the Messiah comes from, of course, if you know. And then on this side, we have John the Baptist, and below him is the prophet Isaiah, whose prophecy in Isaiah 40 is sort of the foundation of John's ministry. It's read, it reads this way, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight a desert, a highway for our God. So this window, uh, to be seen as one, is all about this center figure, which of course is Jesus, holding the bread and the cup. The host, the presence, as it were, of God. So this is our window again. I would encourage you to come up. Um, notice, it's just beautiful. Uh, the, there's actually this beautiful woodwork and painting on the ceilings. It looks like uh, something out of Brave or some one of those Disney movies with the Swedish kind of, what's that called with the ornate, you know, rafter thing, Swedish? There we go. Talk to these guys. They know. Okay. <laughs> the Petersons, everybody. So um, that's our window. Check it out. Uh, I would encourage you to. Now, let's, let's, uh, let's do this. Altars. If you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. Genesis 8, verse 20. This is the first mention of an altar in the scriptures, and it's Noah. It says this, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking of every clean animal and every clean bird, he, he offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Hebrew word for altar is mitzbeah, and it means a place of slaughter or sacrifice, literally, a place of slaughter or sacrifice. And Noah is, again, he's the first recorded person in Scripture to have built an altar. But we see them all over the opening book of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus, books of the Bible. Uh, And they're often made of one of two things, either a mound of earth. In Exodus 20, we find God instructing the people to push together a mound of earth. We've talked about that before. Uh, and it becomes an altar, or um, rocks that were like th- that were unhewn or unwrought. One rabbi says this: the altar is the means of establishing peace between the people and God. Therefore, iron, which is used as an instrument of murder, should not be swung over it. So essentially, unhewn or or un uh, you know masoned rocks, like as they are, build an altar out of them. So they were erected by Noah, by Abram, who then becomes Abraham, who, uh, by Isaac, by Jacob, by Moses. Altars play a huge part in the beginning of the scriptures. Now after this, the theophany, which means essentially God's sighting or experience of God, on Mount Sinai by Moses, there are two altars that become very, very important in the worship of God's people. So before the temple was built, there was what was called a... Tabernacle, well done, good Old Testament there. So a tabernacle, which was a tent, and there were two altars in the tabernacle that then get moved into the temple, which Solomon built first and then Herod built second. And I want to sort of draw this out because it's fascinating to me the way in which the architecture of the temple looks, and and this will hopefully make a little bit more sense as we move on. So you had sort of the temple mount, and then um, this is like the outer courts, or the, uh, uh, it's called the court of the Gentiles or the court of the women. And so this is where the Gentiles and the women would hang out. Not a very progressive group of people, right? Uh, we'll save that for another Sunday. Then you had uh, uh, the, in, the, in, the inside, which was then called the uh, court of Israel. 
And in the court of Israel, or the Israelite court, there was a giant altar called the altar of burnt offering. In Solomon's day, it wasn't that big, but once you get to Herod's day, this thing is gigantic. You could have a dance party on the top of this altar. They had a ramp that you had to like walk up to get up to the, the altar of, uh, of burnt, burnt offerings. It was huge, massive. Then inside of that, you had the holy place. And in the holy place... There were a couple of things. Number one, there was a, uh, uh, a table that held a, a, a bread offering. It was called the bread of face. And this was an offering for the priests or the Levites who served in the temple. There was the seven candled or the seven uh, uh, candled um, um, lampstand, I guess it was, that, that perpetually burned in the temple. And then in the middle of the holy place was the altar of incense. So if you know the book of Revelation where it talks about the the prayers of the people rising up from from the altar, this was uh, an altar that was, again, perpetually burning with incense, and this smoke would rise up as if to say the the prayers of the people. Then you had the curtain, which was torn, of course, on on, uh, the, the day that Jesus was crucified. And this is the holy of holies. This is the one place once a year that the high priest could enter into uh, and in the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant, right? This is Raiders of the Lost Ark. There was the footstool, which the Shekinah glory of God rested upon. There was a uh, sort of a bowl that was filled with manna, which is, of course, a testament or a nod back to the Exodus story. And again, back to Exodus, there was Aaron's rod, right? In the Holy of Holies. So this is the temple, and essentially you go further and further and further and further into the temple. And these two altars were quintessential in the worship of God's people. So that's the temple, my friends. Now, why would I go through all of this uh, rigmarole to show you this? What's the point? I want to ask a question about the significance of an altar. Because these, of course, were just, they were altars. They were made of stone and and covered in, in metal, and they were part of the worship. But what's the significance of an altar? The word means a place of slaughter or sacrifice. Literally, a place where an animal was slaughtered or a sacrifice was made to God. But there's a deeper symbolic understanding to altars when you start looking at them in the scriptures. The altar was the place where people met God. Early on, when someone experienced the divine, when they had an experience that some way changed them or shaped them with God, they would build an altar. They would push a mound of earth together, or they would build a a pile of stones, and they would offer sacrifice on it. So imagine you're walking through the land of Israel, and you come upon this large pile of rocks, and you say to your children, who will then say to their children, who will then say to their children and their children's children, this was the place where God did dot, dot, dot. Altars... They told stories. They were the places where people met with God. And if you were here in this building before we came, there were three altars. There was one over here, one over here, and then there was one up here. And the one up here, if you know anything about Catholic altars, they have relics in them that essentially go back to the story of God's people and the story of the church. Because altars always tell stories. They are the places where people have met with God. And so sometimes they're physical, sometimes they're an actual stone, but I would suggest that sometimes they're not. For some of you, you have places in your mind, in your experience, in your history, your journey with God that have become altars. They were the places where you've met with God, and you know them, right? You can go back to them in your mind's eye. You can maybe even go back to them physically. 
I have one on the shore of Lake, uh, Lake Michigan in downtown Chicago where God called my name for the first time and I actually felt like I heard it. It's an altar. It's a place because altars tell stories. Altars not only tell stories, but they were about sacrifice. They're about the sacrifice of something value in devotion or service to God. So when you experience the divine, often there's this gratitude and this, this devotion that wells up in you that is then somehow able to be made physical through a sacrifice or at an altar. If you remember this window back here, uh, the blessed are those who mourn, there's a woman who's the mother of the Maccabees. She had seven children, and if you remember the story, Antiochus Epiphanes killed all seven of them, and according to legend, Talmudic legend, she cries out, O my sons, go forth and tell Abraham your ancestor, thou didst build one altar whereon to offer thy son as sacrifice. I have built seven. See, altars were about gratitude. They were about the sacrifice of something valuable in devotion, in gratitude towards the divine. So altars told stories, they were about sacrifice, but they were also about revelation. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is Genesis 28, where Jacob awakes from a dream and he says, surely, surely the Lord was in this place and I was not aware of it. Those places where God becomes known to us in a way that he wasn't before. Where God is revealed in some way that we didn't see it beforehand. Altars are about an encounter. These are places where people have met face to face, or maybe better, spirit to spirit with the divine, with God. So altars... We may think of them as a part of this sort of religious structure that maybe some of us are, would rather do without. Maybe for some, it's a different experience. They've played a part of your spiritual journey that is of value and of great memory. Either way, in Scripture, altars are they're places where people meet God. And they're places that tell stories. And they're about gratitude and sacrifice and devotion. Now, what about priests? Because priests and altars, are inter- they're, they're connected, right? Exodus chapter 28, if you have your Bibles. And if you don't know anything about Israel, Israel had 12 tribes, of which one of them were the Levites. And the Levites, according to Exodus, which we'll read, were the priests that served the people. It says this, Call for your brother Aaron and his sons Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Those of you who are pregnant, I would just suggest a couple of names. Set them apart from the rest of the people of Israel so that they may minister to me and be my priests. Make sacred garments for Aaron that are glorious and beautiful. Instruct all the skilled craftsmen who I have filled with the spirit of wisdom. Have them make garments for Aaron that will distinguish him as a priest and set him apart for my service. That's Exodus 28, 1 to 3. The priests were at the center of of, uh, the temple life in Israel which is to say that they were the center of religious life in Israel, which is to say that they were the center of life in Israel because Israel isn't Israel without the temple and its religion. So the priests are dead smack in the middle of everything that happens that's of value to the people culturally and consciously. They are in the middle of it. So who were the priests? These people were representatives of the people to God and God to the people. They were ambassadors. They were intermediaries. They were translators of the messages of the people to the divine and from the divine to the people. 
right? Once a year, they would go into the Holy of Holies and they would offer sacrifice on behalf of the people and they would receive forgiveness from God for the people, right? So they were the go-between. They were the intermediary, as it were. You had to be ceremonially clean and pure and undefiled to do this job. This is why, by the way, in the story of the Good Samaritan, which is one of our windows back here, no one would have blinked an eye about the Levite who passed the bloodied Samaritan on the side of the road. Why? Because the moment he enters into that, he's defiled, he's unpure, he's unclean, and he can no longer do his job in the temple, which he was going to, by the way, which was the center of life for Israel. So everybody would have said, yeah, let the Levite pass because this matters a lot to us as the people. So you had to be clean. They were access to God. If you wanted forgiveness or you wanted to offer sacrifice, you wanted uh, to offer thanksgiving, if you wanted to worship in the temple, it all went through the hands of the priests. And because of that, this is an incredibly powerful group of people, right? And in Jesus' time, there is efforts to co-opt this group of people, the spiritual leaders of Israel, to start doing the bidding of Rome because they had a lot of power. If you wanted the presence of God, it went through the priests. I grew up in a church that was uh, not anything like this. It was like a big gymnasium out in uh, the suburbs that had a a roof that creaked and cracked. We could never figure out why that was, but it was eerie as a child. But I remember as a kid sitting there, and up on the stage, which was terribly elevated, right? You had the huge, massive choir loft in the back, and then there were these two high-backed chairs, these big wing chairs, you know, like you see in some study in England, you know, with some old guy smoking a pipe, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, so these two, the high-backed chairs are up there, and every Sunday morning, Pastor, Pastor Call and Pastor Benham would sit in these two chairs, one while the other was performing his duties, and then one would sit and the other would stand. And for a kid, it was like the Wizard of Oz, you know? It was like, these people were sort of, and, and my memory is, uh, every mem- memory or, or uh, idea I have about spiritual things and God in my early childhood was somehow connected to these two people. Like, it all went through them. Does anybody have that sort of memory or recollection or spiritual experience? Why am I telling you all this? Altars, priests, Jerusalem, Israel, priests, altars, it's all coming to one spot. Standing over me as I preach this sermon is a picture of Jesus holding and offering what's commonly called the presence or the host of God. You see, previously, the presence of God was believed to rest right here in this one place, and here he is. He's calling us right now. (laughs) He's like, Micah, careful. (laughs) Right here, the presence of God was believed. The Shekinah, the Shekinah glory of God was in this one place. And in order to get access to it, you had to go through this one group of people of whom there was one appointed person who could go into that place one time per year. And so the presence of God was held at bay, as it were. And yet here we are, sitting below this window, where we have Jesus offering freely the gift of God's presence. There seems to be a little bit of a disconnect between the two, or at least a shift See, where previously the presence was far, far, far away from the people, today, this morning, the presence, I would submit to you, the presence of God in interaction and encounter with the divine 
is as close to you as bread and wine. Ordinary, mundane elements that Jesus says are offered whenever and however often as the people of God gather. Actually, more than that, just all the time. Now, you might notice the irony of today. Here I am talking about the presence of God, which is free, loose in the world. But I've put an altar, I've built an altar as far away from you as I possibly could. And I stand in the way of it, do I not? Because I think a lot of times for people, this is their experience of religion. This is their experience of institution. If you want the presence, you have to do X, Y, and Z. You have to fill out these things, do these things, believe these things, subscribe to these things, act in a certain way, follow these rules, and then we'll give you the presence, the host, this gift, the good gift, Eucharist. And I want to suggest this morning, by the way, that's why I built this stage this way. We can only do so much with this space, right? We're renters. (laughs) And uh, we can't knock it over and start over. But I built this stage extension to try to bring what we do on Sundays more out into the middle so that it's not so far away from everybody. So that whoever might be offering scripture or whoever might be leading in song or whoever might be reading or praying is more out here with the people instead of far back away and there's some chasm between us. Because this is the beauty, this is the theology of the New Testament that I think matters a great deal. When Jesus dies on the cross and is resurrected, there's a, t- there's a, temp- a curtain in the temple that's torn as if to say the Spirit of God is loose in the world for any and all. It's no longer you have to go through all of these steps, but anybody and everybody who wants it can have it. So this morning, there's a couple of things that we'll be doing as we close. We're going to receive communion, the Lord's table. And we're going to try, uh, we're going to, ask the people who are serving those elements which are so far away to gather them and bring them down and serve them here among the people as a way of saying that the presence of God is not far, far away, but it's actually as near as bread and wine. It's actually as near as the very breath that you breathe, and it's for you. The table has been set for you to feast if you should choose. There's a bowl on the altar that has incense in it. By the way, if you walked in and you're like, were they smoking weed? It's, it's sage, guys, sage. Because everybody knows that God's favorite herb is sage. So there's a bowl on the altar that has incense in it, and it's burning. And of course, this is a symbol, a picture of the prayers of God's people, the hopes, the dreams, the cries of their hearts rising up from this altar this place where we've met with God. Can you imagine the stories and the people that have come through these doors and the ways in which people have met with God here? Because altars tell stories. The marriages, the communions, the baptisms. We're a part of that. 
And so if you are here this morning and you want to, there are cards in front of you, the, the, the ones with the prayer requests, uh, I would invite you to put things on there. And as you come up to receive communion, if you want to keep going and place those in the bowl, there's two bowls so they won't catch on fire. Don't worry. So maybe you need to come to the altar this morning, this place that's marked and noted as the place where the people have met with God. Maybe you need to bring something here this morning. Maybe it's a broken heart. Maybe it's joy. Maybe it's gratitude. You're invited to do that. And there's nothing stopping you. There's nothing in your way. Maybe the the New Testament says that we, the church, are a priesthood of believers, that there is no distinction between me and you in that way anymore. So you are as much able and, and welcome and responsible to be a representative of God to the world as I am as a pastor, as a vocational pastor. But why do I always get invited to pray at the meals? Literally, I was somewhere yesterday, our group run. Uh, Pastor Micah, you want to pray for us this morning? Which I think ties into this insidious little lie that somehow you're not qualified. That only people who have an education or a degree or an ordination or wear a robe or a stole can pray or approach God. And I would just submit to you that biblically that's not true. It's not good theology. You are as much a priest as I am. By priest, I mean a representative of God to the world. So maybe this morning there is some ownership that needs to be taken by the people of God, the priesthood of believers, where we receive this gift, this honor that we have to represent God to the world, to be people of light and salt. Or maybe today you just need presence. You need, to, you need to encounter and experience the living God. So I'm going to invite the band to come up, and uh, we'll, we'll do a couple of things here. We're going to have a few moments of silence. I'll invite you to think about a few of these things, whatever it is that the Holy Spirit might be doing in you, in your heart, and we want to create space for that. And then over these last couple of weeks, we've been doing this refrain of Lord have mercy, which is this curie liaison, this, this, these words that the church has spoken for centuries and centuries. And so I'll offer a prayer and we'll sing and pray and sing and, and then we'll receive communion together. So let me enter us into a time of silence with a word of prayer. God, as we gather this morning, as we take these few moments quietly and we reflect on the importance of altars and this gift and honor that you've invited us into to be priests and priestesses in the world, representatives of you. And this presence, this host, this spirit of God that's offered to us, this encounter with the divine that's offered to us this morning. Would you meet us where we are? Invite us to take one big step of courage towards you. So in this silence, God, speak to us. For whatever needs you may have. Now please receive this benediction. May you come to know and see and identify the places where God is near. 
May you build altars of remembrance in those places, and may you offer a sacrifice of thanks. May you come to know that you are a priest, that you are you represent God to a world that needs healing, hope, and forgiveness. And may you receive the presence of the living and resurrected God today in just the way you need it. Grace and peace. Welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching.